Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would hear what you, you want us to hear this morning. We pray that uh, you would be so close to us as we read this extremely significant passage. And Lord, we pray that Jesus we would be so illumined in our hearts through the hearing of your word. Amen. Amen. Um, if you've been tuning in with us, we've been in the book of Genesis. And so far in our series in Genesis, we've been thinking about how significant knowing our past is in order to understand our present. And that's what Genesis has been uncovering for us uh, is our human past. So in Genesis 1, we thought about the questions of where do we come from? Why does this all exist? Genesis 2, last week we talked about what's at the bleeding heart of our humanity. And this week we asked that other question, which humans have asked throughout all of history, which is, what is wrong with the world? What in the world is the problem? We all instinctively realize that there's a goodness to the world and to humans. And yet we also instinctively realize that something is wrong and deeply broken. And if Genesis 1 and 2 set up our understanding of the goodness, the inherent goodness of humanity and the world, Genesis 3 sets up our understanding in Christian theology of what is wrong with the world, what is broken. And this is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. There are not many stories in all of literature or all of human history that have had a more enduring effect on our human imagination than the story of our first parents, the snake and the fruit in the garden. And part of that is due to just the sheer divine genius of these only 24 verses, only 24. Uh, For thousands of years, the most smart scholarly people have not been able to mine the depths of what is in these 24 verses. And yet a child, my five-year-old and two-year-olds, can understand, emotionally understand what's happening in this passage. It is at one and the same time about the original sin. Uh, This is the fountainhead of Christian theology's understanding of inherited original sin. And yet, it is also an ordinary sin. And that we read this and we think, oh, that's me. I've been through this before as well. So this morning, we're going to enter into this powerful story. And we're going to really begin by looking at the three sections of it, which are the temptation, the sin itself, and the consequence. And in doing so, Genesis is going to teach us what's wrong with the world and also point us to how God is in the business of restoring and fixing the problem. Praise God. So grab your Bible. I'm going to grab mine. Flip to the very, very beginning of the Bible, uh, to Genesis 3. And let's set the scene really quick. So the world has been created and ordered by God in Genesis 1 and 2. Humanity has been created in the image of God and given all these sacred privileges and all the bounty of the earth. And in that context, Adam and Eve's love story in chapter 2 unfolds. They come together in this beautiful dance of unity and distinction. And chapter 2 ends, if you look at it, with them being naked and unashamed. It's a picture of love and innocence, intimacy with God, with each other. 
And look, you can even see them right there. There they are. Look how, look how just perfectly blissfully happy they are. And in this place, uh, at the end of the passage in, in chapter two, God gives positive and negative commands to Adam. And this is in chapter two, verses 16 to 17, if you're looking at it. He says, basically, eat, take, everything is for you. Feast on everything in the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, two things about this command that I want us to grasp before we dive in to chapter three. First of all, what's up with this tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You could read that and it could just be like, why? What's up with the restriction here? This doesn't make any sense. When you look at the rest of the Old Testament, we find that good and evil, when they're paired together, means something more than the sum of their parts. In essence, it's like the maturity to discern right from wrong and make judgment calls about right and wrong. So in Deuteronomy and Isaiah, we learn that children do not possess the knowledge of good and evil. But when they grow up, one day they will possess that knowledge. My favorite example is about Solomon in 1 Kings, the really famous story of his prayer. Um, the kingdom of Israel is exploding. There's all these people. And Solomon feels the pressure to rule, but he feels like, he, I don't have what it's, it takes. I'm not discerning or wise enough to do this. And when God says, what do you want? Solomon prays for the ability to discern between good and evil. He prays for this. And what's fascinating is God is thrilled that Solomon asks that and he gives it to him. But there's a lot going on there. Solomon asks for it. He depends on God for it. All that to say, this is not in and of itself a bad thing. It's something that comes with time. So as an example, I have a three and a five-year-old. Um, and they are moral people. For those of you who have children know, they are absolutely moral people. They are accountable. And they are held accountable in my house for obeying and disobeying. They get it. They have sensibilities. But they are not in the place in my household of discerning what is right and wrong <laughs> in the Cunningham household. Uh, my two-year-old doesn't call those shots. For that, he depends on my wife and I for those things. One day, he will grow up and they will have that ability to discern, but right now they do not. In the same way, Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 2 depend on God for this. Think about what God has been saying in chapter one and chapter two. All the time he said something is good or not good. Remember, we pointed that out. God is the one who is doing this. He's in this role. He's the one who has the knowledge and authority to define, to discern, and to pronounce what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And he's commanded Adam and Eve to not reach for that role, to not reach for that knowledge. So that's important for us to get. Second is the consequence of death doesn't necessarily mean they're going to drop over dead immediately if they touch the apple. People who nerd out on the Hebrew here will tell you it means something more like when you eat of the tree, you will be doomed to die. Death will then become a certainty. Okay, so that's where we're at. Here they are. It's amazing. The, the Garden of Eden is, is epic. And in this context, up slithers the serpent. He's crafty. He's got street smarts. He slithers up to the couple, he singles out Eve, and thus the temptation of Adam and Eve begins. And here's what I want you to see about this, the temptation bit, these first like five verses. The temptation revolves around cultivating doubt 
in God's commandments and character and planting a lie. And I'm using uh, agricultural terms here. So think about farming. When you cultivate the soil, you turn it over, you add new stuff to it, you're preparing it to plant something. This is my best attempt in Madison to use gardening vocabulary because we're all obsessed with raised gardens. I got some too during COVID. Uh, that's, what, that's what the serpent's doing. First, he's going to start eroding and mixing up their trust in God and his word. And then in that confusion, he's going to plant a central lie. Turn with me to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent begins by asking a super loaded question that forces Eve to restate God's command in her own words, and then he starts poking holes in her version. And as he does this, two things are happening. First of all, the conversation, they're just getting further and further away from what God actually said, as we'll see. And as a result, doubt is cultivated into the soil. This is like when you meet that really smart guy at your school who's just watched tons of YouTube videos about Richard Dawkins and he like got out of his modern psychology class. And he comes up to you because he knows you're a Christian and he says, explain to me why the Bible says that sex is all evil and that Christians have to hate their bodies and repress everything about them. Now, what a ridiculous question, right? From the get-go, that's charged. He's not saying, can you help me understand historic Christian theology about certain things? No, the type of question that he asks begins by framing the conversation around untruth. And it knocks you on your back feet from the beginning because it's utterly bogus. So you're there, even if you're not a theologian and you've memorized all scriptures, you just know that's a ridiculous statement. So you try your best. You say, no, that's not, that's not true at all. The Bible like created humanity and sexuality. It's all amazing. There's just an order to it and consequences for it for certain things. And as you're stumbling as you're responding, you might be stumbling a bit, but you're at least trying. But then the guy capitalizes on your fumbling response. That's ridiculous. Have you not read Freud? Have you not read this Atlantic article? The rules you are talking about are utterly arbitrary. The consequences you're talking about have been statistically proven to be utterly false. You're an analog player in a digital world. Wise up. Express yourself. It's what you were made to do. And then you reach for your amazing, clarifying, awesome comeback, and nothing's there. So you just receive it, and then you walk home. Now, what happens in those situations? First of all, you're embarrassed because you got owned. <laughs> I've been there before. But also, a crack has opened up in your foundation. It's small, but it's opened. You know... After that conversation, I don't really fully understand it. Hmm. You don't, you realize I don't really know the why behind it. And thus, you begin to doubt what you previously believed. 
The serpent asks, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, that's utterly ridiculous. If you look at verse 16 in chapter 2, he literally says the opposite. You may eat of any tree in the garden. And Eve knows it. And so she's, she's quick to respond. No, we can eat of anything, just not this one, lest we die. But she stumbles a little bit. If you look at what God said and what she says God said, she adds a little, the bit about touching. God didn't say that. She takes away a little bit. She lessens the, the consequence. She takes off the surely of dying. And it's hard to know whether she was already fudging it a little bit or she was just doing her best. It's hard to know. But for whatever reason, the serpent capitalizes on the crack that had already begun to open up between their words about God's commandments and God's actual commandments. And he widens it. Eve, Eve. Sweet, sheltered Eve, you're not going to die. The opposite's going to happen. God knows when you eat of this tree, you'll just be extra awesome like God. The fruit of this tree is actually amazing. God's just withholding from you. And Eve's trust in God's commands is therefore turned over. Doubt is cultivated into it. Even as you read Genesis 3, it starts to happen to you. I don't know if you've experienced that because it's so well written. Let's dig a little deeper. Notice how central to the serpent's deception is removing judgment. Removing judgment. The serpent does not say, Eve, Eve you should eat this apple, but you're going to suffer. You're going to die. You're going to start a chain of events that's literally going to throw the entire history of the human race into weeping and gnashing of teeth. But man, let me tell you, the fruit is so good. It's worth it. Despite all of that, that's going to happen. No, that is not what, what the serpent says. My hunch is he would not have eaten it if that's what he said. But no, he begins by diminishing and removing the consequence. You will not surely die. And this is foundational to all false teaching. In the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the false prophets are the ones who preach, quote, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They remove God's judgment. They, take, they tell people, you're good, everything's good, we're all good. And of course, everybody loves these type of people, but they're lying. And the same is true today. The quickest way that you can smoke out false teaching even in your life, is if you're thinking, are the people that I'm reading or am I listening to, are they not as serious or in some ways as intense sounding as Jesus is when he talks about things? And if they are not, you are under false teaching. There's a massive, long conversation that we should have here. The other thing, though, I want to point out is that central to the serpent's deception is that he challenges God's timing. Um, remember, knowing good and evil isn't, isn't necessarily bad, but God clearly asked them not to take that role, but to trust him in that role, to depend on him for that. So think about Christ in the wilderness. It kind of helps us think about timing and the process here. Uh, Jesus is tempted at the beginning of his ministry, if you're unfamiliar with the Gospels. And when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he tempts him with things that are good and that Jesus is actually going to eventually receive from the Father. So he offers him all the kingdoms of the world. What is Jesus' inheritance? The kingdoms of the world. He tempts him with provision, with food. And of course, God is his provision. 
He even tempts him, I think, with the resurrection in some ways. Throw yourself off this and, and get angels to, to raise you up. Jesus knew, though, that this is what the Father had promised him. Satan was tempting him to usurp God's process, God's timing, and to do it himself. Um, this is the primal scream of all children and teenagers, right? Mom, Dad, I'm ready. I remember my brother and I arguing over when we could first get a pocket knife as kids. It was like age seven or eight. And of course, at five, I was like, I'm ready. Um, but mom and dad sometimes want us to wait. They have reasons for doing so, to being patient with the process. And adults, we do this too. We don't like the role we're given. We don't like waiting for God's good gifts. And as we are feeling a little overlooked, a little disenfranchised maybe, along comes someone who is ready to offer you what you aren't allowed or what you don't have, but with a price. And in that moment, you take it, you pay the price. All of this is cultivating doubt towards the commandments of God. And not only that, it begins to cultivate doubt in the character of God. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you feel the implication there when you read it? God is withholding. Again, Genesis 3 is so well written that it's hard to read this dialogue and not yourself start to wonder, hey, yeah, why is God not allowing Adam and Eve to eat from this tree? The implication is he knows that you could be like him and do the same stuff as him. He's just repressing you. The serpent has a PhD in critical theory, right? He's a part of this evil power structure. He's just withholding. He's suppressing you. And so God's character begins to be shaded. Do you see how the serpent focuses on what is forbidden and not what is freely given? All the attention is focused on what's forbidden. How he focuses on what Eve doesn't have or isn't allowed to do, not on what she is. And in so doing, God's character begins to morph in Eve's mind. Maybe he is random in his rules. Maybe he himself is bad. Maybe he is more of a tyrant than a loving creator. Maybe he is the problem. When you trust the leader's character, um, even when stuff doesn't make sense, it's, it's so easy to follow them, right? Because you trust them. But when you start to distrust a leader's character, even what they say that might make sense or be right, you begin to be suspicious of, right? It starts melting. That's happening here. And all of this deception and twisting and cultivation of doubt is tilling the soil of Eve's mind. It's enriching it with questions and distortions, and it's getting it ready for the planting of one central lie. And that is this, you know better. You know better. You can do better than God. You never get to be in the driver's seat. You should be in the driver's seat. You should define morality. What's right and wrong. You should be the one standing in judgment over God's commands. Now let's pull these out. Let's put them on the table here. We need to see if these are right or wrong. 
Now is the time for you to be subversive. Now is the time for courageous disobedience. Reach out, take it. The only way to find out on what's the other side is to go there. That is the central problem here. Humanity reaching for the role of God. And it is this deception and confusion and false teaching which leads to Eve's action. And this is super important. The order there is really significant. Genesis 3 does not tell the story of Adam and Eve just forgetting which tree it is and accidentally eating the wrong one. It's not a dumb mistake. This is not a Homer Simpson don't moment. This is a picture of our first parents slowly sliding away from God's word. Listening to careful arguments, allowing these untruths to spread over the, the dinner table without being checked, confirming it through books they're reading, stuff they're finding online, and boom, they're being deceived. So at the end of the day, it's all about their relationship to the word of God. How does God create the world? Through what means? People here, how does he create the world? Through his word, he speaks it into being. So the entire world is literally built through the stuff of God's word. And what does the serpent attack? The word of God. So in some way, all sin, and I think this is important, in our life, in the Bible, all of it sprouts in some way is tethered to falsehood and untruth. The order is significant. First comes the deception and the shift to God's word, then comes the sin and the destruction. Let's look at the actual sin in verse six. So when this woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, there's all that happening in those leading up words there. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In relationship uh, to the time, in relation from the, the time of deception to the sin itself, it's, it's very quick. Deception is long, the sin is just boop, super fast. She comes to her conclusion, she takes, she eats, done. It takes thousands of years to build a beautiful city. It can take a second to destroy it with a bomb. And lo and behold, here's Adam. Don't you love him? He pops in here, who we discover is with Eve. And then he takes some and he eats. And what's Adam been doing? Watching ESPN, taking a nap, not wanting to intrude. Adam is just as culpable as Eve in this whole thing, as we'll see. And he also commits, on top of everything else, the sin of passivity. It's also clear in the text that Eve is the one who speaks and gives the fruit to Adam. Um, so in a sense, the deception is passed along from the serpent to Eve to Adam. And the order there is significant. We'll see God work back up that order in a second. But verse 6 is all we get about the actual experience. There's not a lot about how it tasted. The Bible doesn't say, and then Eve was in the bliss of euphoria for how amazing it was. There's no moment of, of reverie. I think it's interesting. The text runs pretty quick from the sin to the consequences. In my personal life, having experienced this, that seems about right. The consequences of sin dominate the benefits of sin. Every time you fill the cup, it's empty. 
you eat it, it turns to ash. And what are the consequences? The main before and after the text highlights is nakedness and innocence before and nakedness and shame afterwards. Before, they were at ease. They're like my son Aaron, who freely walks into our street butt naked. They were so at ease. They were united to one another in God. Their bodies and their creator were not problems. But after they eat the fruit, their eyes are opened, and they become full of shame towards themselves and fear towards God. Shame towards themselves, fear towards God. Now, there are deep theological riches here, deep riches here. But you don't need a nerd or some like academic pastor to help you understand this. You get it, right? Remember, we said this is the original sin. It's also ordinary sin. Every single one of us has experienced temptation and reached for a fruit, a forbidden fruit. And immediately afterwards, you feel as if the world is full of eyes. Everyone knows what you've done. You feel the pressure of everything caving in on you, looking at you, condemning you, and you long for your innocence back. You want to return it. You want your peace back. You want your purity back. The flesh of the fruit was not as sweet as you thought it would be. The driver's seat did not feel like freedom. It felt like slavery. And I think this is the first great consequence we see just in this beautiful story is shame and fear. But then God sits down with Adam and Eve and like a father begins to explain the long-term ramifications and consequences of what they've done. And uh, I was going to preach in another entire sermon on this because there's so much here, but we short we shortened our series in order to preach about race a couple weeks ago, which I'm glad we did. So forgive me for not spending a ton of time on this, but essentially God says that because humans have put themselves at the center of the world, in the place of God, rebelled against his word, all the harmony of God and humanity and creation is going to be broken and fragmented and twisted. Verses 14 and 19, God is going to show us how at every level things are going to fall apart. So first off, God says that there's going to be this all-out war for the rest of history between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. In other words, evil and falsehood will constantly be battling and trading mortal blows. Humanity is going to participate in this. Humanity is going to perpetuate this war. All of us are going to walk in this same temptation. And beyond that, all the beautiful relationships God made are going to be broken. Woman's relationship to bearing children. Woman's relationship to man and vice versa. Man's relationship to woman. Man's relationship to working the ground and all humanity's relationship to God. So much here. All of it, God says, is going to be jolted and twisted and broken. And our last picture is of God making garments to cover up Adam and Eve. And my goodness, what a beautiful picture of our creator God here, covering up Adam and Eve. It's astonishing. But then the last picture is that they are driven from God's presence, separated, expelled from the garden, and off they wander 
east of Eden. John Steinbeck stole that from the Bible. It's all about this, by the way. They lose it. This painter actually has another painting, Thomas Cole, about the expulsion from Eden. And you get this kind of split in the middle where you see the beauty of this behind it, but then also you see them walking into just the wilderness. And it's tragic. It's utterly tragic. So enter shame. Enter fear. Enter the battle of the sexes, which is just as bloody as ever. Enter abuse. Enter war. Enter broken homes. Painful family legacies. Enter racism. Enter greed. Enter violence. Enter disease. Enter sin. And just as God promised, enter the doom of death. We're going to see the Bible plays out this sad history. Adam and Eve's children continue to reach for the role of God, to put ourselves at the center instead of him, and things have gone very badly ever since. That was the original sin, and that is the ordinary sin. You are just as culpable as Adam, who was just as culpable as Eve. So what's wrong with the world? Why is it broken? Me. You. Us. We asked for the car keys. I uh, really we stole the car keys from our creator. Because we scorned his wisdom and his authority and his gifts and his role in our life. And in doing so, we have utterly wrecked the car of the world in the ditch. We are the problem. That's a unique answer to this problem, answer to this question that we ask about the world from Christianity. We are the problem. That's a hard word to hear. Not other people, but you, me. So what do we do? That would be the next question I would ask, right? What do we do? The other really hard word the Bible gives us is that by ourselves, we can do nothing. No single person, no leader, no political system, no philosophy or ideology, no type of education can solve the problem of the world, which is us. All that is still us in the driver's seat, do you see? Leaders in politics and philosophy and education are still produced by us, and as long as we're in the driver's seat, we're reaching for the role, we're still doomed. What we need, what we need is for God himself to come back into our life, back into your life, take his rightful place once again in our life. We have to find some way of reversing that decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden. And glory, hallelujah, that is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. Mm. When Jesus is born of Mary, it is literally God himself coming after us outside of Eden. It's God leaving his, his home, his sanctuary, and entering out into the, the blistering wilderness to come find you. To bring us back because he loves you. 
It's amazing all this starts with him coming after us and not us returning. Come now, found Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And also in the incarnation, Jesus is actually entering into our temptation. He's entering into this experience of being in the war between the offspring of the serpent and the father of lies and the offspring of the woman. He becomes the offspring of the woman. He's the new Adam. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, like I said, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness three times and he doesn't budge. So awesome. But even more in our gospel reading, which Anne read, at the end of his life, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and it's clearly meant to be a parallel of Eden. This is the new Adam reliving his temptation moment. He was tempted three times in the garden and three times he comes back to ask the father if this has to be the way that it is. Because more than any other time in his life, the temptation Jesus feels is to go his own way instead of the father's. And he wants to, he even says that to his father. Is there any other way? I don't want to do this because he knows he's being asked to pick up his cross and die. And he feels it. He goes through the same thing. But what does he say in our beautiful gospel reading? And this is his choice to say this. He's not being forced to do this. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, you be at the center. This is hard, but you know best. Father, I am deeply tempted to go my own way, but I trust you. Didn't you love that psalm that we read from Psalm 119? Your rules, which I love, says it twice, which I love. I depend upon your word. I know your character, Heavenly Father. So your will be done. I cling to you. That is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane performing the great reversal putting God's will back in its proper place in humanity through his obedience to the word of God. And in obedience, Jesus goes to die. And the cross is an even deeper reversal of Eden. He dies on a tree, not of abundance, not of life, but a cursed tree, the tree of death. And he dies naked. He dies in shame. He experiences the public humiliation of what you and I have done. And in an astonishing turn in the Bible and in just the history of the world, God covers Adam and Eve and he uncovers his son. He exposes his son. He exposes and uncovers himself. For every time you've been misled, for every time you've misled somebody else to get something you wanted, for every time you've sat in judgment over God's word or his character, which we do all the time, for every time you have sinned, reached for the fruit, Jesus died. He suffered so that you could be forgiven. Do you know what the Bible ends with in the book of Revelation is him once again giving access to the tree of life to his people. Jesus says, I am the life. And by his resurrection, when he rose again, he defeated death, the doom of death. He conquered sin. Jesus is depicted in the Bible as the dragon slayer. 
And that's exactly what he is. In his death and resurrection, he grabs the snake and he shreds it to pieces. Hallelujah. And when you meet Jesus today, that is the same ministry that he offers in your life. That's what he came to do. That's what he wants to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we are overwhelmed by your love for us. Lord, I pray specifically for anyone who's listening right now who feels the fear and the shame of sin profoundly. It's red hot from something recently done or a wound recently opened or the brokenness of all the things we talked about. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you minister to them the forgiving, loving, reconciling work of your Son. Would they have an experience of you coming up to them and clothing them and raising their head? Lord, we know that we cannot fully receive this full ministry without acknowledging and admitting that we are naked, that we have reached for your role. We have put ourselves over you. We have subverted your word in so many ways. But Lord, we know that even that acknowledgement is only the path to the fullness of your love and your healing and your life. Oh, Lord, help us to follow Jesus in putting you at the center of depending on you for wisdom and life and goodness and caution. Lord, restore to us the seriousness of your judgment, the seriousness of your commands in a way that brings us flourishing in life, not fear. God, we run to you. You sought us when we were wandering. Come and renew this in our hearts today, O oh Lord. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.